Well, it's the holidays here at Antibodies, and probably like you, we will be celebrating by spending time with our family. Now, we recognize that some of you, for one reason or another, may not be burying your nose in the old photo album, may not be dragged, kicking and screaming down memory lane, may not have the time or inclination or what have you to reminisce about your most recent human ancestors. And you know what? That's a-okay, because sometimes the nearer branches of the tree of life are a little bit more irritating than the larger bows and limbs connecting us to every organism, both living and dead on the entirety of the planet Earth. So to commemorate family and the spirit of the past, today as a special family-friendly holiday episode of Antibodies, I will be walking you through the evolution of the immune system. My name is Natalie Graham from the City of Hope Comprehensive Cancer Center, and today I will be your guide through some of the most distant branches of our beautiful family tree. This is a review of non-animal immune systems, then I'll make another episode about what happens in animals. So get ready to learn about your weird so-called simple cousins and our goofy far distant relations. Welcome to the reunion, baby. As a note, this episode will also be a little less jargon-heavy, so you can share it with the people you care about, whether they know about NF-kappa-B or not. Okay, so uh, it's kind of hard to start an evolution episode because, well, um, you know, this is kind of embarrassing, but we don't really know how life started. And if you want me to get into some RNA world sort of speculation, meet me after class, but it seems like life was a whole lot different back then. The earliest indication we have of life on Earth is fossil remains of our cyanobacteria ancestors some 3.7 billion years ago. These bacteria helped to oxygenize our atmosphere and make life livable for everything that came after. Of course, even these were highly evolved organisms, suggesting that earlier forms of life were spicing up the primordial stew for much longer than that. What we do know for certain is that pretty much as soon as life was created, moochers were created. Which makes sense. It's way easier to steal the components of life from some schmuck than to develop your own metabolic processes to make your own building blocks. Even we are metabolic moochers and have to eat other organisms to survive. All of the nitrogen, carbon, oxygen in your own body is only accessible to you because some other critter processed it down into something you can use. So anyway, however long that there have been organisms, there have probably been other organisms or even proto-organisms trying to attack them. And of course, when I'm talking about proto-organisms, I'm talking about viruses. Viruses allow us to stretch our imagination about what the first forms of life might have been like. Now, don't go putting words into my mouth because viruses... We consider them non-living, but they do possess unique characteristics that make them life-like. They have a little protein box that separates them from the rest of the world. They have DNA or RNA, so one virus can actually descend from another, and they can evolve. They do not have the machinery to make anything for themselves, whether that's food or little baby viruses, and that's why they have to mooch off of somebody else. So who were they mooching off of in these early stages of life? Bacteria. We call viruses that attack bacteria phages. Now, bacteria are crazy simple, but they're still more complicated than viruses. Bacteria don't have distinct organelles, like a nucleus or anything, but they can run multiple complicated metabolic processes. They can replicate their own DNA, 
They can make RNA and protein, and they can do other things with those proteins. So first, to prevent infection from phages, bacteria evolved fancier cell walls and membranes. Now, some viruses do have this crazy trick. They can hijack the machinery of the cell they have just infected to put their own genome inside the genome of the bacteria, just like copy-pasting their own little sequence into the master code of the bacteria to trick the bacteria into making copies of the virus for free. As we are now learning, however, bacteria evolved ways to detect and fight off infections for viruses. For instance, bacteria make certain chemical modifications on their own DNA so that they can tell when new DNA is integrated into the genome from a foreign source. This tells you that the ability to tell self from non-self, which is considered a critical role of the immune system, has already been established in the simplest organisms known to man. Once the bacteria identify these foreign sequences, the bacteria can methylate them, which is a way of hiding them so that they are never accessed and made into RNA and proteins. Something called restriction enzymes, which you may or may not use in lab, have evolved to cut out sequences that were historically associated with viral DNA motifs. Now we are even learning more about how bacteria can adapt to cut out specific viral sequences using Cas proteins, even if no bacteria has ever seen that virus before. We are now using the same advance from bacteria, lovingly nicknamed CRISPR, to make DNA and RNA manipulations in both the research and therapeutic arena. Scientists are also learning about how bacteria evolve sensing machineries to inhibit the mechanisms that viruses hijack, basically going dormant so that viruses can't mooch off of them anymore. And of course, as a last ditch effort, some bacteria have even evolved a self-destruct mechanism where they can detect viral infection and just kill themselves so that viruses can't replicate and infect all their adjacent bacteria friends. Bacterial immunity is a rapidly developing field and one rife with the opportunity to discover something cool or co-op something into a money-making technology, just in case you're looking for something to be interested in. Bacteria have evolved to be perfectly happy as single-celled organisms. Most organisms on Earth are single-celled, including all archaean bacteria. Protists have a nucleus, and they have other organelles like mitochondria and chloroplasts. And boy, if you want to trip out on an unbelievable evolutionary saga, go look up how eukaryotic cells evolved to have mitochondria and chloroplasts. Anyway... We now have more specialized zones of biochemical activity within our cells. Even more importantly, mitochondria um, not only massively increased our energy availability, but also helped develop mechanisms of controlled cell death. Protists may also represent early advances in in immune system function. Some consider behavior of protists like amoeba to be like that of protomacrophages, They can move towards things that they want to eat by following gradients of chemical signals, and they can tell potential snacks from other amoebas and from themselves. We fancy metazoans also have large cells that patrol our body looking for non-self things to snack on. In fungi, in order to tell self from non-self, proto-nod-like receptors began to evolve. These look for molecular motifs from known enemies, and then are passed from generation to generation, Kind of like when your mom tells you not to pick up hitchhikers. Some fungi are single-celled, like yeast, and some are multicellular, so being able to detect who is a friend or foe is an absolute necessity. Fungi add RNA and protein modifications so that they know for sure what stuff is fungi stuff and what stuff is invader stuff. 
fact is, though, the transition from populations of single-celled organisms acting in concert to a multicellular organism with specialized cell types is an evolutionary quandary. So uh, don't judge me if I don't hit everything right. One thing I would like to bring to your attention is that with those nice mitochondria, we began developing more precise mechanisms of controlling cell death. And controlling death is not only metal as hell, but it also helps control how we develop as an organism. If any cell is damaged, if it's growing in the improper place, if it's infected or something, just kill it. Like, we're multicellular organisms now, we'll just make more cells, it's fine. One of the most conserved mechanisms of immunity across kingdoms is just killing off if infected cells. All right, so we're really moving and grooving through the time scale now, and now we're onto plants, and they're just so weird. They are these complex, multicellular organisms, but they don't have circulation or anything, so it's not like you could have specialized patrolling cells. However, plants still have specific immune responses and immunological memory. They have a slew of proteins for detecting non-self, like pattern recognition receptors, that really are not all that different from our own. They also modify all their proteins in RNA, so if they can tell if anything weird gets in. They also have intracellular sensing proteins, which identify particular pathogens that recurrently infect plants. These are called R, or resistance proteins. Upon sensing a foreign threat, plants can activate something called effector-triggered immunity and a hypersensitive response. Here, they can kill off infected cells, and they also generate antimicrobial molecules like chitinase and beta-1,3-glucanase. Importantly, plants can take their hypersensitive response and, using R proteins, develop resistance against the pathogen that caused it in something called systemic required resistance. Maybe one day we'll invite a plant immunologist on and uh, we'll learn a little bit more about that because the mechanism gets quite complicated from here on out. As an aside, uh, something that I learned today about plants that pisses me off is that they suffer from autoimmunity. So now we've got more to read. Great. Anyway, I bring all of this to your attention to show you that here in plants, we see evidence of specificity, memory, self and non-self identification, all in what we might consider a simpler organism. What's kind of cool about natural selection is that we get to research creatures and see how similar we all are, no matter how long it's been since our most recent common ancestor. We learn that advances made long, long ago that have not changed much in millions of years suggest that these advances are important for survival. The immune system is incomprehensibly old, which suggests that we have needed to protect ourselves for a long, long time. The fact that many aspects of the immune system are conserved in organisms across huge gaps of time tells us that these are foundational, well-working mechanisms conducive to supporting life. We can see this even now as we simmer in the aftermath of a brand spanking new virus. We can rest easy knowing that our immune system could be trained to attack it, and my guess is that whatever the next crazy superbug is, life on Earth will be fine. Our immune system is ancient knowledge, but it's still flexible, diverse, and ready to rumble at any time. I hope you enjoyed this tour of our weird cousins and the other kingdoms of life. I'll be back with another episode soon. In the meantime, I hope you catch up with all of our science communication endeavors at antbuddies.com.
org. Have a happy and healthy holidays from your friends here at Antibodies. Antibodies.